Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin for the next hour to take your Bible questions. Noting the setup, we've gotten equipment adjustments, so bear with us as we're getting used to not only the new layout, but hopefully also the improved quality for all of you listening. Of course, this is our contribution, but you can contribute to the broadcast as well. If you would like to send us your questions, you can do so through our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to know how that's properly spelt, you can join us online at calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's Calvary, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the purple bar at the top of the screen. It'll say Watch Live, and you'll be sent to a page titled ccftucson.online.church. There we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, Monday through Friday, which, of course, will translate uh, internationally to wherever you'll be listening. We'll have a countdown clock in case you missed the previous or the following broadcast. And we're looking forward to engaging with you there. But note that if you join us live on our website, on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll be able to leave your questions in text. And we'll be able to monitor that as the broadcast unfolds. Note as well, for the time being, we have a Facebook page, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like there, you'll be notified when we're going live. And we also have a YouTube page, A Reason for Hope, on YouTube. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, we want to encourage you to join us on our website just in case things go the way they usually do. So with all that said, note the kind of questions that we are accepting on the broadcast are A, questions, sincere questions, we don't want to give answers that you don't want to listen to, and of course, Bible questions. If you have sincere questions that don't pertain to the Bible, there are plenty of ways to get those answered. This won't be one of them. We're looking forward, though, into addressing those issues and starting off uh, perhaps uh, in interesting directions. Whenever uh, Peter and I get together, things are always interesting, but we want to make sure that's because the Holy Spirit's here. So why don't we start with the word of prayer and make sure that that's the ongoing constant. <laughs> Dad, Thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. Please bless this broadcast and make sure that all the equipment goes smoothly. We know that dependence on technology is just waiting for disappointment, but expectation of you is something that we can have hope in and look forward to more and more. So we want to ask that you would open our ears to your voice, our hearts to receive this information, not just to know it, but to live it. And thank you that we have the honor of not only sharing, but also receiving these gifts from you, whether it's from your word or ultimately just from your heart. We ask that it would all be for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting us off, obviously yesterday this was addressed briefly, but in the United States we're seeing once again the, I guess, uh, circle of issues that are meant to stir everyone up going back once again towards mass shootings, but not just shootings as in involving a firearm, but a certain intent uh, towards mass violence. And we want to make sure that we're not only informed as far as how to properly 
respond to these sort of events. We went over yesterday about how the only one whose actions and attitudes we can control is our own, and the best contribution towards evil in the outside world is a pursuit of God inside our worlds. But with all that being said, we also want to make sure the other angle of this is addressed. And Peter, you have a few thoughts you wanted to share on the matter? Uh, Yeah, yeah, and I I do hope these are going to be helpful for those listening because and I want to be very clear and concise in the way that I speak this even though the vast majority of people who let's say have mental illness will not actually act out in violence and the vast majority of people who struggle with the same kind of internal uh, issues that some of these mass shooters share it doesn't mean that they're going to express those frustrations express those views in a way that's violent towards others I wanted to focus on this specific type of shooting uh, in Various sociologists call them rampage shootings. So this would be a particular act of violence with no real outcome in mind other than just killing other people. So in most shootings that we encounter, most mass killings, either it's gang violence where, again, I'm shooting someone else because they have offended me or because I want something that they have. It's a murder. I am intending to kill this person because, again, they have offended me or I want something that they have. Or it's some sort of a terrorist Uh, terrorist-motivated shooting where I have a political agenda or a theological agenda that I'm trying to accomplish through violence, something like that. A rampage shooting, on the other hand, is a shooting or a killing in which there is no agenda other than the causing of harm. So some very famous ones that have happened in the United States would be the Columbine shooting, where we actually know exactly what those shooters wanted to do. They wrote about it. They were influenced by this idea that humanity is kind of a plague on the planet and it would be better if we were all just dead. So they wanted to inflict mass amounts of pain and then eventually kill themselves. That was the intent of the Columbine shooters. And uh, I'm very sorry for the dark topic, by the way, those who are listening. But, you know, we live in dark times and we try, try to be as honest with these things as we can from a biblical worldview. Uh, but we also have various other individuals throughout the last couple decades that have done the same thing. People going to nightclubs, people going to movie theaters, people going to schools. I think about Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where a man for the cause of his daughter, his daughter unfortunately passed away, and he was so upset with God in general that he specifically targeted a Christian school in an Amish community, broke in there and murdered three children, three little girls, saying, if God took one of my girls, I'm going to take three of his. So we, we see this this nihilistic, evil, malicious, violent behavior manifesting in these individuals, and it kind of freaks us out a little bit because even though I can be appalled and hate a terrorist shooting, I can understand that a little bit. I can understand the reasons of the killer. But these kinds of shootings, they just seem so evil. They seem so beyond the pale that it's hard for us to wrestle with them. Now, as of yet, we do not know any official motive of the killer in Texas. But from everything we can tell so far, he wasn't a very mentally well individual, and he did seem to specifically target this school out of a hatred for his treatment in the past and just hatred for, again, humanity in general. He didn't really intend to leave that place alive. So you have another instance of what we would classify as a rampage shooter, potentially. Uh, from all data, we would look like a rampage shooting. So I want to kind of try to help explain 
why people get to this mentality, even though the vast, 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 vast majority, over 99.999% of people who experience what I'm about to describe will never take out those experiences or those feelings in a violent manner towards others. This is something that is growing in our culture. This mentality is growing in our culture. And in people who already have a predisposition towards violence and behavior that is harmful towards themselves and others, they might be predisposed to act out of these experiences in violent behavior. So once again, I am not saying that everyone who has a mental disorder will necessarily act out in this way, and I'm not saying anyone who experiences these feelings will act out in this way. In fact, I can almost guarantee the vast majority of people will not. So what is it about our culture that's producing these individuals? Well, there's a couple of things that we look at. One study that I always find very illuminating, it was a, let me get the exact stat for you. I don't want to just throw it out there. Uh, it was John Calhoun's experiment in the 1960s. So John Calhoun is a very interesting guy, and he wanted to figure out what the effects of overpopulation would be on a society. So he didn't have a lot of money. So what he did is he just bought a small amount of rodents, and he had this idea of, I'll just let them reproduce until they become overpopulated in whatever environment. So he fed them. He gave them water. He gave them resources, and he provided them a completely secure environment. Now, what happened is uh, before the society could become overpopulated, the society just killed itself off. Off, essentially just completely <laughs> imploded and died and he basically writes various uh findings on this experiment and they're really enlightening given what's happening in our society now uh, this is a direct quote from him after this experiment is over he says when all sense of necessity is stripped from the life of an individual life ceases to have purpose the individual dies in spirit now, what, what he means is that for most of us, our purpose in life is going to be translated through our friends, our family, our community. We fit into a community, and we begin to provide for that community in various ways. We start off as a son or a daughter, and we also might be a brother or a sister. Then we become friends. Then later, we gain mentor figures in our lives. We gain aunts, uncles, other various individuals within our life that feed into us. And as we grow older and older, then we start to give back to that community. We start to become mentors to people who are younger, older brothers, older sisters, to those who are beneath us. And then we start teaching them. We start instructing them. We start living our lives in ways that become examples to them. And then we give back to the community through having a job. We get married. We have kids. And the cycle continues over and over again. That is the fundamental purpose of a human being, to live inside of the society that God has provided to us and give back to it. That's where we feel the most complete and the most fulfilled. Now, the majority of reasons as to why people focus on this cycle is because they're necessity. There is necessity to it. If I live in a culture where we're a small tribe in the middle of nowhere and we have to provide enough food for the tribe, we have to provide enough clothing and resources for the tribe, everyone in the tribe has to contribute. There are no options for people just kind of loafing around. And not only that, but you also have to produce new children because if you don't, then the tribe's going to die out, right? Those kids become central to the propagation of that tribe and the survival of that tribe. This is why, by the way, when you see in the Old Testament, people have such an emphasis on child rearing. The reason why is because 
Israel was a small nation at that time. They needed a population growth in order to survive. You have a physical necessity that boons this type of growth and this type of cycle. Now, once a society becomes overly prosperous, you see the cycle end. They no longer have a need to produce children to provide for security or prosperity or anything like that. In fact, kids become more of a drain than they become a benefit within a culture like that. So the culture begins to despise children and they begin to despise roles, the role of a husband, the role of a father, the role of a wife, the role of a mother, the role of a child. These roles begin to become uh, much despised, and therefore people don't live into them. So this is what he observed in these generations. He says, amidst the violence, hostility, and lack of mating, a younger generation reached maturity having never been exposed to examples of normal, healthy relationships. Sound familiar? With no concept of mating, parenting, or marking territory, this generation of mice spent all of their waking hours eating, drinking, and grooming themselves. He dubbed this generation the beautiful ones, right? So uh, if you don't know what that is, go on Instagram sometime, and you will see some quote-unquote beautiful ones, some people who spend literally all their time just eating, drinking, thinking about sex, and then grooming themselves. This is what the new generations have become. Why? Because the roles have been taken away from them. They don't see the necessity of roles, so they don't seek to pursue those roles. Uh, when I think about my time as a teenager, I never had a goal of being a husband or a father. And a lot of the kids that I talk to nowadays, you know, high school age, uh, whether my nephews, my nieces, whatever, most of them aren't thinking in those terms. They're thinking about career. They're thinking about money. They're thinking about resources. They're not thinking about roles. They're not thinking about family. In fact, a lot of times they try to break away from their family and their communities in order to, quote, unquote, find themselves. Right? This is this cult of authenticity that our culture is teaching. The problem with this worldview is that it creates a lot of emptiness in people. If you cannot define yourself within a community, it is impossible to define yourself altogether. This is another reason why we see this rise of gender identity becoming a sweeping craze across our nation, where every five seconds there's a new gender identity. Me and Bo just did a podcast today about cake gender. And uh, this uh, is where would they find that podcast, by the way? On the Running Light uh, podcast page. I'll so. provide a link for that on our Twitter page. Exactly. And I, th I think we're also on uh, Spotify, so you can look up Running Light podcast on spotify and you can uh listen to that podcast but yeah the, no joke it's a it's a real thing it's called cake gender and uh, it's people who think of themselves as light and fluffy and uh, maybe layered in their gender and personality and this is a brand new identity that's come out why is there so many uh, attempts to identify themselves is because they don't have any identity beyond what they create for themselves they don't have roles they don't have anything grounding them in their community at large and so they feel aimless and they feel worthless and they feel like they can't make any meaning of their life beyond that they're born into a world that tells them that global warming is a impending tragedy and catastrophe that will happen and that we're to blame humanity itself is to blame and the worst thing happening right now is overpopulation and kids being born into poverty it starts to teach people that you're not wanted, that human beings are bad for this planet, this anti-humanistic movement within our culture. Beyond that, a lot of these kids are growing up without fathers. They're growing up without some of them without mothers. This person, what we do know for sure is that his dad was not in the picture. His mother was a drug addict, had a lot of issues with the cops. So he had a very tumultuous home life where he didn't receive a lot of stability and a lot of care within that those formative years of his life he didn't really feel wanted in that really 
specific way that kids need to feel that when they are infants, when they are children. So many kids, again, they don't have fathers. They don't have examples of what it means to be a man. So a lot of young boys don't have examples of what it means to be a man because their dads run out on them. They don't have structure. They don't have access to community. So what do they do? They find a substitute community through online sources. Now, the problem with substitute communities through online sources is that they're not real. These people don't know you. They haven't spoken to you. They don't care about your life. All they seek to do within your life is provide you with validation. They can't challenge you. They can't actually come up to you, come alongside you, have a meaningful conversation with you. They can't touch you, embrace you, nothing. All they can do is give you a thumbs up or a thumb down on your posts. And kids are starting to associate, young people are starting to associate likes and validation with genuine love and affection. And whatever community they can get that in is where they gravitate towards. That's why a lot of people are pointing out bullying as being a contributing factor in a lot of these kids' lives. It's not really bullying that's the problem. Bullying has always existed, but rampage shootings are on the rise right now. So you can't attribute it to bullying. What's happening is because they get bullied, they feel like, oh, I can't connect with people in person. So they gravitate towards these online communities, and that's where they begin finding this amazing validation that they've always been looking for. And then when you find meaningful relationships and they start challenging you, then that you consider that bullying and that's isolate right. yourself further. Exactly. So you, can't, you cannot break apart in your mind the difference between helpful correction and bullying and oppression plus our culture is teaching everyone to think of themselves in victim terms so there's all these problems kind of come together and coalesce into people who feel empty nihilistic they have a lack of faith in their life they have a lack of community in their life they're just meaningless widgets wandering around and like i said the vast majority of people will not express those emotions through violence towards others some will express it through violence towards self they might commit suicide or, or propagate self-harm to a large extent, and suicide's at an all-time high in young people right now. But even then, they might not do that, but they might just live a more aimless existence, just kind of living to live, this kind of beautiful ones that John Calhoun observed, where they're not really pursuing anything meaningful other than taking care of their physiological needs and grooming themselves, essentially just working on their appearance and how they present themselves to the world. Very lost, very, like I said, nihilistic, meaningless, and aimless. And I would be willing to bet, you know, the studies are bearing out right now. The Surgeon General released a study last year that speaks to this. I'd be willing to bet that you're going to see it increase more and more and more, especially as people start to believe that in-person community is less and less important, where we had an entire two years where kids were prevented from going to school in person because people thought, well, you know, it's kind of worth it to prevent the virus, not thinking about the impact it would have on the social development of these kids. And by the way, again, I have nephews and nieces ranging from the ages of five all the way up to 18. It affected all of them drastically, right? You and I staying at home and just not having not being able to go outside for a while it affects us as adults it affects kids greatly when you take away a part of their social maturity that happens at a young age this guy and the buffalo shooter both moved into these online communities more more fervently in the last two years because they were completely separated from in-person contact. And so they just gravitated towards, again, these validating relationships that they found online. And by the way, just because someone's validating you doesn't mean they're validating you for good things. These people are putting out psychotic posts 
and people are validating those posts. And so people who are on the edge of psychosis are being pushed over the edge by people who don't have the wherewithal to correct them and to point out this line of thinking is wrong, it's inappropriate, and help them see that. So uh, that's just a, a little way to, to think about it. There's a lot there. But as a community, I'll give a couple just takeaways. As a church, as individuals, what can we do about this? So fortunately, we can't fix the world. That's not something that's within our power. We could pray for the country at large. We could pray for the community at large. But start in the smallest area and work your way out. Number one, if you're a parent, if you're uh, some sort of a mentor in someone's life, work on yourself. Start, start at home. Look at your own life. What's wrong with me? What are my fears? What are my worries? What are my selfish hangups that prevent me from being able to feed back into those in my life? What are the areas of my life that I have struggles with that I need to work on? The more you put yourself into effort and purpose, striving after God, the more you'll feel that fulfillment. It is a lie that the culture presents to us that the number one way to find fulfillment is through validation. That's just not true. God is amazing in that he provides us with infinite validation and affection, but he also provides us with an infinitely high standard that he desires for us to run after. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 12, he says, Not that I have attained, nor am I perfected, but this I do. I run that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. He's like, I'm not stopping my pursuit of God until I know him and love him at the same level that he knows and loves me. That pursuit gave the Apostle Paul purpose, even when he was in times of his life where he didn't have any purpose beyond that, where he was literally locked in a cell with nothing else to do but pursue God. He found purpose in that and meaning in that. We need to find purpose and meaning in our own lives. Otherwise, we'll never be able to communicate purpose and meaning to those around us. The next step is work your way out. Family, friends, how are you integrating yourself with your family and friends? Are you making sure that you would be the kind of person that is seeking out these higher roles, right? That you do want to be married one day, that you do want to have kids, if that's something that God has called you uh, to. God will call a small percentage of people to singleness for life, but that's a frighteningly small amount of people. Majority of people will be single for a time, and then they will get married. But even if you are going to be single for the rest of your life, there are ways to invest inside of your community, for sure. That doesn't discount you from being able to do it. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Even though he never had kids of his own, he did have spiritual children. He talks about Timothy and Titus, various people like that, that he just fed into, making sure that these guys, and Timothy, by the way, there's a good chance that he didn't have a dad, and Paul became like a surrogate father figure for him. Um, so feed into your local community, feed into your church. Churches uh, as a whole, I feel like we as leaders in the church are having to figure out ways of how to better integrate the people around us into the body itself. Because at a time where people already have large amounts of social cohesion, the church can kind of just slipstream on that. So in other words, when people are looking for relations and connection, when they go to church, they bring that attitude with them towards church. But when people are already widely disconnected from culture and community in vast majorities of their life, they'll bring that same attitude into the church community itself. They'll come in not seeking community. They'll come in just seeking maybe a sermon and some worship, and then they'll leave. So churches have to think about how do we 
help people understand that this is a need in their life. It's not just a suggestion. It's something that will not only be very beneficial for their psyche, but also beneficial for their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. How could we be better at this? This is a constant, ongoing thought that I believe all ministers need to wrestle with. What are the better ways that we could do this? How do we make our children's ministry better? How do we make our youth ministry better? How do we make our, our men's ministry, our women's ministry? Are those really important messages being spoken to people? And when people do start showing signs of trouble, do we have the ability to talk to those people and confront them? Another problem with the prof- – hey, I'm, I'm a professional counselor, but I'll tell you, a problem with – having professional counselors in our culture is it produces this idea of that's someone else's problem. You need to go talk to a therapist. And I always tell people that see me in, in therapy, I say, look, I am here to eventually work myself out of the job. I do not want to be this role within your life. I, I mean, that would be great if I could be in your life for the rest of your life. I could be a friend, a, a mentor, an accountability partner, but I don't want to be a counselor in your life for the rest of your life. The reason why is because you need to learn how to turn your local community, your friends and your family, into your counselors, into people that you are able to talk to about the most serious issues of your life and receive counsel from them. Some of it good, some of it bad, but you pray about all of it. You eat the meat, you spit out the bones. That's something we need to all learn how to do. So very, very important stuff. I hope that makes sense. If you have follow-up questions, please ask. But any last thoughts on that? Nope. <laughs> so let's go out to the Bible questions. Uh, thank you all for your patience. Uh, here's a question from Craig, who wants to know what the role of the Holy Spirit will be in heaven. Is he what will fulfill us in us, our ability to live perfectly? Yeah, good question, Craig. When it comes to Scripture's description of the hereafter, Everything centers around one thing, and that is with Jesus. That is the most definitive description of heaven that we have. As far as building on that point, obviously, Revelation 22 goes more into the fact that we'll be capable of interacting with the Father, and that, of course, in other passages, this will tie directly into your question, noting what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, noting the presence of God, the omnipresent spirit, is, of course, just as much sharing that characteristic with the Father and Son. But we don't compartmentalize the Trinity and say that, oh, well, our fellowship will mainly be with Jesus, while the Father's, you know, making sure the new creation works and the Holy Spirit's, you know, doing his thing. No, when we have fellowship with Jesus, as he said, we see the Father, we know the Father, we worship the Father, we love the Father. So it's the same is true for the Spirit, because he shares the same divine nature. If that then is the case, then what will the Holy Spirit's role be in heaven? The same as Jesus, for us to enjoy and fellowship with him forever. As far as the role that we have with him now, though, that is more in lines with salvation, sanctification, and spiritual growth. But when those things are fully actualized, that's why I think you're asking it, it's noting the same reason why heaven will be paradise, will be with God. And that's the emphasis, is that Jesus, the Father, and uh, the Spirit will all be the reason why heaven is so wonderful. We'll be with him. And that fellowship, uh, well, 
couldn't put it into words, otherwise they would have written them. But we have a lot to look forward to. The spirit is one of those reasons. Anything you'd want to clarify? That's good. All right. One for one, then. Um, <laughs> question from Robert, who wants some insight on Proverbs 13.22. Uh, it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. He wants some clarification on the context of this. Uh, he suggests the sinner's wealth is rewarded to the righteous, health, wealth kind of teaching. He just wants some clarity. Yeah, it's an interesting one, Robert, in the tricky part about the Proverbs is that people, especially today, want a mathematical, this is the answer, this is the reason, this is the interpretation. But the Proverbs weren't meant to do that. They're not meant to encourage an answer. They're meant to encourage thinking and a worldview. So if we look at Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 22, and again, we'll read it for the sake of clarity, a good man, so we have a point being made about someone you want to be, right? Even Patrick understood this from SpongeBob. I want to be good, right? Leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So grandparents, if you're out there, you're not sinning if you sneak your kids some money. But that's just noting a point as well. In the ancient world, inheritance, this idea of saying, I'm not wasting my inheritance, I'm working so that they have a good life. There's the the noble observation, a man plants a tree that he himself will never sit under the shade of. He's investing in the future. That's a good man. But if on the other hand, it says, but... The wealth, so money is the focus here, of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, what is being made? Obviously, this is an example of a contrast. You have the good man and the bad man. What do they do, and what do you not want to do? If that comparison's then made, what is the topic? It's finances and the future. If a wicked man isn't storing up an inheritance for his children's children, then who's he storing it up for? Well, if no one else, it would probably be for himself or something less than his own family. And, of course, that will ultimately go towards people who aren't his children's children. So what then does that mean? If you have a man who doesn't invest in the future, someone who is a sinner, literally, then you have someone who you don't want to be. If you have a good man, you have someone who's investing in the future, especially those for his family. Now, test that interpretation. Does the Bible, maybe we can jump to the New Testament, but you don't even have to skip more than two books. Ecclesiastes talked about this as well. Does the New Testament mention anything about you know, investing in your own family first, even especially in regards to condemning those who do that at the expense of their own family. Yeah, Second Thessalonians chapter, th- I, I believe it's 3. Uh, Paul says, if you, a man does not tend to the needs of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. First Timothy 5. Thank you. First Timothy 5. Let us never be said we're infallible. Also note that if we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, what was Solomon's observation when he was investing in his son, Rehoboam, but he thought the wealth was the end-all, be-all. It was, well, <laughs> uh, wealth has a way of making itself wings and flying away. You know, they, who knows that he'll be wise or foolish with it. It will ult- ultimately amount to nothing. Obviously, Solomon's observation in Ecclesiastes is don't work. It's if you work for its own sake, it's going to disappoint you. But here's the point. If the contrast is made, I want to be the person who's investing in my future and my family, the sinner is not doing that. Now, how would that be applied? How would that be tested? Keep it in the Bible. Make sure that as you're examining your conclusions, 
that they're in line with the source material, that like I said, First Timothy 5, Ecclesiastes and Solomon's observations, that would be a good balancing act. But if on the other hand we were to say, oh, well, does this mean then that all wealth is ultimately going to good people? Not in this world. But if on the other hand you want to be good with your money, you want to use your finances in such a way that God honors, his word would say, the, much, the more you invest in your children, the more he is honored by that. And I think that would be something I would want to model myself after. Anything you'd want to add to that? Uh, yeah, just to, to address the aspect of the prosperity doctrine. So oh, you, you'd have to go to other passages of the Bible in order to deal with it. But I would say that this passage can't really be taken in the sense of a prosperity, meaning that I think that in your question what you were saying is the pastor was reading it like, oh, if you're righteous, you'll be wealthy, and it will go to your kids' kids. But if you're a sinner, you're going to be poor. Uh, Now, this is very interesting because in the book of Job, we actually have a direct reference to this. So in the book of Job, his friends tell him, well, Job, the reason why your wealth isn't going to your kids' kids, because what happened to Job's kids, they were killed. Job, the reason why your wealth isn't going to your kids' kids is because you're wicked. You're obviously a bad father. That's why they're all dead. And, and yeah, way to we'll rub help. salt in the room. But, uh, you know, you, that's why your kids are all dead. And you just need to repent of that. And Job responds in a very interesting way. He says, essentially, like obviously I'm paraphrasing, but essentially he says some of the most wealthy people on earth are the most wicked. He says you're, you're just – your observations are wrong. So – if, the, if I'm going to read that passage in the prosperity light and say, well, all wealth is going to go to the righteous people, well, then you have to believe that the most wealthy people on the planet are the most righteous. Is that what we see? No. As Sean alluded to, the fact we see almost the opposite. Some of the most wicked people on the planet have the most money and resources. Now, another interesting way to look at it, uh, you could, from a more economist standpoint, Solomon might be pointing out the idea that the economy is like a living organism that we all kind of live within and contribute to. So if a, if a righteous person, his intent is I am accumulating wealth and an inheritance. And by the way, an inheritance doesn't just mean money. Uh, it could mean values. It could mean a system of beliefs, ethics, morality, all these things. An inheritance for my children so that they may live a more prosperous life. He's saying that the intent of the good person is to, as Sean alluded to earlier, feed his own, take care of his own family, prosperity, and progeny for generations to come. That's his heart. That's what he wants to do, and it will happen. Now, for the wicked, we don't know, really know anything about the wicked in this. It does seem like the wicked are accumulating wealth in this proverb, but he's just saying it is for the use of the righteous. It doesn't mean that they're not using it for wicked purposes. It doesn't mean that there are wicked people that aren't inheriting that particular wealth. But what he's saying is if the economy is kind of like an organism, he's saying in God's economy, no matter how much wealth this person invests and maneuvers, that wealth is going to sit in the economy of the country and it will benefit the righteous, right? So uh, if you have like a super... I I, kind of think he's evil, Bill Gates. (laughs) So Bill Gates is really wealthy. But you know what? I profit off of some of the things that he created, right? The the window systems and things like that. We we benefit off of Bill Gates' wealth. Uh, So the righteous, in a weird way, are profiting off of what he's accumulating. Now, unfortunately, he's doing some not-so-great things with his wealth. But ultimately, what God is saying is no matter what, in God's economy, he's taking care of his people, and he's utilizing even the wealth 
and the prosperity of the wicked to do so, which is really cool. Yeah, so just note what, again, Peter is doing here. He's not just looking to passages that would affirm his interpretation, but also testing bad conclusions with the passage. Anyone can read any idea into these things, but the conversation doesn't stop there. You run into this on the Internet all the time. Oh, that's your interpretation. Yes, you said those words in that order, but is it a sound interpretation? Does it fall in line with what else the information source has also said? If you talk to me and say, oh, yeah, Sean is a man, and then you say, no, I heard Sean is a woman. Well, maybe he was quoting a woman, but he said, well, if I was a girl, then no, that would be important to test. If you're especially speaking in a poetic context, (laughs) say I was quoting song lyrics and you were to come to factual statements about me for them. First, I'd hope the song was pleasant, but secondly, you'd also note with the same in Proverbs. What is it guiding? An answer? No, a thought, a worldview. What is it forming? Uh, Doctrine, dogmatism, and this is the way to uh, prosper yourself? No, it's reminding you there are two types of people, those who invest in the economy of the present and those who invest in the economy of the future. God's honored by the latter. Be that guy. You know, uh, the stick figure, you know, this is this is righteous. He uh, invests in his grandkids. Be more like righteous, right? <laughs> that would be the simple way of putting it. But let us know if that helps you out. Um, here's a question from Michael who wants some clarification on what we talked about yesterday as pro-Israel being a non-negotiable. And he wants to break down the question, what does a non-negotiable mean? He assumes one cannot be a Christian by neglecting a non-negotiable. Not in this context, Michael, and I'll clarify why. Two, does this mean someone who believes in replacement theology or covenant theology isn't a Christian or is ignoring a non-negotiable? Again, this is why context matters, Michael. Remember yesterday we were talking about an informed and consistent political view as Christians. When we're talking about being informed and consistent as Christians involved in politics, obviously there's two things you don't talk about in polite company, religion and politics, so here we go. The two things that matter, right, is because of obviously the people who hold those positions are invested in them. Religious views pertain to our relationship with God, the vertical, our relationship in regards to politics, regard our horizontal relationships with other people. So obviously these are things we want to have thought through, and they also intersect with one another if you don't catch the illustration. So when we're talking about the issue of I as a Christian, how do I keep my values in voting in line with what I also affirm to be true? Well, there are negotiables, things that the Bible, the source of truth for a Christian, doesn't affirm or isn't insistent about. When it comes to higher low tax rates, obviously there is an obvious answer as to what's more fun, but it's not as if uh, people are willing to pay more taxes. Suddenly they are spirit of antichrist and should be exercised from yeah, the church. Christians can have good faith debates about this and disagree and still be like, hey, we're both just trying to follow the Bible and things like that. But follow the Bible is the key. And if someone were to, in a political stance, remember that clarification, Michael, say, well, I think uh, Israel should be wiped off the face of the map and I support Hamas's charter. Well, all well and good, but that is in very much conflict with what the Bible says. In Genesis chapter 12, God said that it will bless those who bless you and those who would carry that blessing to their descendants, and I will curse those who curse you. To further emphasize this, the minor prophets said, he who harms you, in reference to Israel, touches the apple of my eye. That's a very sensitive part of your person. 
noting the illustration. Uh, God doesn't have an apple with his eye or an iris in modern terms, but the point we made is that. When we're talking about any non-negotiable political issue, remember the context and the conversation was your political views. If a Christian has a inconsistent or poorly informed political view, they need to be addressed on that because it is a sinful position. But we don't then say, in regards to your question about covenant theology, if someone has inaccurate views about the Bible or themselves, or if someone ever commits a sin ever, therefore they're no longer saved. No, we can recognize Christians do and are struggling with sinful positions that they are either A, unaware of, or B, struggling through, growing beyond. God's dealing with them on those things, but it doesn't mean they're not saved. The terms and conditions for what makes someone a Christian are, in obvious non-negotiables, a whole other list than what would be a consistent and informed view about an informed political view in a Christian mindset. So when it comes to a Christian view of a mindset in salvation, what are the non-negotiables? Notice this isn't pro-Israel and this isn't pro-life. This is The Bible is the authority on what God is and isn't, who God is and isn't, and how to come to relationship with him. And in the Bible, we read that God is a trinity, Jesus is God, and he demonstrated that through his historical death and resurrection, and that salvation is by his grace through faith, period. If we can agree on those non-negotiables, then we agree that we are both Christians. If we have political views, we also would have a list of non-negotiables, but not because one list invalidates the other. Let me know if that's clear, and Peter, maybe I was too defensive. Is there anything you'd want to clarify about that? You did good. I, I would just add one thing to it, and that is that like, there are levels of negotiation, negotiation that we can have, like Sean said. There are things that we can look at as say, like, you know, I believe that the Bible clearly lays this out. However, since it's not that big of an issue or big of a topic, we can have more of a civil debate and we can kind of part and not really care too much about it. So, for instance, someone who teaches replacement theology, I think that's a very and non-biblical idea. <laughs> I think it's I think it's untenable position, to be honest with you. But since it's a smaller issue, I can say, like, hey, we disagree. That's okay. I just but won't it's, listen to those messages. Yeah, I'm just not going to listen to those messages. I think that that issue is bigger than... Uh, someone say being post-tribulation rapture versus pre-tribulation rapture. That one's even smaller of an issue where it's like, okay, we can debate about it, but honestly, if, if you're getting heated about it, I'm not even going to care. But then there's a bigger issue of, let's say, someone taking that to a logical conclusion and saying, well, because Israel, we have replaced Israel as God's people, therefore, it's okay to like you said, kind of wipe out Israel and they don't need a state and things like that. If you take it that far, then the debate will be even bigger. Do I doubt your salvation? No, but it's still a bigger debate. I think it's a more serious issue that you think this way because I think it affects the way that you look at the children of Israel and God doesn't look too kindly on people that don't like his children. It's um, not reflective of his heart. I'm not seeing a lot of uh, light of God in you. Exactly. Uh, same with like the abortion issue where since it's a much bigger issue than taxes or something like that, we would have I would have a much more fervent debate with someone if they say, well, I don't think the Bible speaks on the issue of abortion, so I don't care. Like, that's a, that's a very serious issue. I would definitely be willing to go to bat for that one. But as a brother. As a brother, as a sister. All right. Um, let us know if that helps you out, Michael. And speaking of which, regarding the, non, <laughs> the <laughs> non-negotiables of what makes someone a Christian what doesn't, we had a question from Mac who wants to know— um, 
how do you accept the grace that is given to us from the Lord? Uh, I have a passage in mind in Hebrews, but do you have anything you'd want to give to him as far as a quick and easy understanding of the issue? Um, It depends on what grace you're talking about. So I think you're talking about divine grace. So there's grace that God gives to all people. This would be what different theologians have called the common graces. So you have the grace of life. You're alive. (laughs) You know, you can experience the good things of nature and creation. You aren't owed your existence. God gives that to you because he is good. That's right. The common graces, if you want to accept that from God, you just have to kind of live into those graces. The grace that I think you're talking about would not be the common grace, but the divine grace. This is the grace that enables us to have a saving relationship with God. Uh, The only way biblically to receive that is to put faith in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Yeah, and and that's the foundation of uh, the biblical answer. It's Hebrews 11.6. For, and remember, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God, noting salvation, must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, Peter, we talked about this a bit this week in our purity group, but noting that any pursuit without um, its goal in mind is going to obviously be one we'll be discouraged in after a certain point in time. You can just do something on a whim, but eventually you're going to get tired and say, what am I doing with myself? And if you do something incredibly strenuous, you're going to reach that eventual conclusion much faster. The point being made, though, is this. If I receive a gift from somebody, but I don't know them and I don't trust them, I'm not either, A, going to accept that gift to begin with, or I'm not going to enjoy that gift the way I ought to if I did know them and if I did trust that they had my best intents in heart, even if, uh, you know, I I won't... uh, give an exact citation of the illustration, but if uh, a man in a mental asylum gives uh, his doctor a box of chocolates and he has a long history of violence and mutilation, you'd be very cautious of opening the box. It's like, is there any limbs in here or anything? It's like, why would there be anything like that? Because I don't trust you, that's why. But if, on the other hand, God gives you something, you don't know him, you don't trust him, that's what faith means, trust with reason, then I'm going to obviously doubt, well, how do I know that this uh, cosmic entity that I think is God isn't just deceiving me and stringing me along so that I'm still caught in this sin and ultimately end up in hell anyway? What if this whole cross business is just a self-delusion and he's stringing me along? Well, that shows that you don't know the God of the Bible. You can say those words. You can even rationalize those conclusions. Edgy atheists on the internet and Reddit do it every day. But if, on the other hand, I know God, I remember what he's done throughout history, I recognize his intentions were always good for his people— and anything that went wrong was their fault, not his, I'll read that back into me and say, wow, he's given me a gift. I am grateful. But if, on the other hand, I don't know him as well as I ought, well, then I'm going to doubt those things. Now, notice my saying that's where you're at. No, but I'm saying that this is the solution. This is the answer. How do I accept grace? Well, you know who it's from, and you recognize and remember the reasons you have to trust that it is, in fact, a gracious gift. So if that then is your foundation, remember it starts and ends with faith. What is faith? Trust with reason. How do you build your reasons to trust somebody? You remember the times they were worthy of that trust before and add it to your own repertoire. And note, I'm sure if we took the time to do so, we'd also have plenty of examples in our own life. The common graces are a start. Um, 
what does the psalm say? Uh, Forget not all of his benefits, who ransoms your soul from hell, forgives all your sins, renews your youth so that it's renewed as the eagles and so forth, Uh, heals all your diseases every time that you got better. You didn't deserve that. God put a system in place where you can be thankful for it. But the point being made is that, Mac. Let us know if that helps you out. There's a follow-through as well. Why is a blood sacrifice needed for sin? Could you elaborate more on Proverbs 30, 24 through 28? Two questions. We'll clarify the second one in a moment. Um, the reason why blood sacrifices meant anything is because of a principle that was given in Genesis chapter 9, I believe, where it notes that life is in the blood. So if life is represented in the Bible as a picture, a symbol of blood. It's explained as such. Obviously, we catch the illustration. You lose a certain amount of blood. You lose a certain, if not total, amount of your life. But if, on the other hand, I understand when the animal's blood is shed, a life's being taken, well, I consider the consequences of sin, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin, the natural result of sin, the payoff of sin is death. But, by contrast, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That was the picture that blood sacrifices were meant to describe. It was based on an already defined principle that what? Life is in the blood. And if that's then the case, then if something were to die on your behalf for sin, it loses its life, because that's what you deserve. When Jesus did that, it was a universal substitute, not a single animal substitute. And the author of Hebrews goes more into this. You can read it on your own time. Or maybe Peter will go into more detail. But is there anything you'd add to that? No. No? All right. Let us know if that helps you out. Again, Mac, thank you for the question. Here is one going out to... Oh, did you not want to do the Proverbs 31? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding <laughs> me. Yes. Uh, can you elaborate on Proverbs 30, 24 through 28? All right. I'll read that out loud. Uh, this is Proverbs 30, verse 24. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps its hands, and it is in king's palaces. Uh, So the book of Proverbs actually is incredibly interesting and really ahead of its time in its view of the natural world and the universe. So for most people, they didn't think that there was much of a connection between the natural world and the divine world. So investigating the natural world had some benefits, but not a whole lot. The writer of Proverbs sees that the supernatural world created the natural world from nothing, right? This is very different than all the other mythologies where the gods just kind of show up in the natural world and they kind of reorganize matter in order to suit their needs. And the supernatural world is a composite of the natural world. Exactly. So... In the Proverbs, there's this idea, and Solomon was a big believer in this. This is why he literally says he was a zoologist, right? <laughs> he, would, he would study animals and plant life. The reason why he did that is because he really believed if God creates the universe from nothing, then everything in the known universe speaks of God. Everything. You see some of the Psalms talk about this, that even the, the mountains speak of his majesty. The heavens cry out in his glory. So meaning that they believe that literally everything in the universe communicates aspects of God's nature and his relation to us. So they would investigate the natural world in order to understand God's order or his plan. And that's what wisdom is. It's tapping into God's natural order so that we might live a prosperous life unto him. So 
in this particular proverb, he's looking at these animals in order to gain some sort of a wisdom. So we'll, uh, there's there's so much I could say about him, but I'll just say a little thing right here. Go to so, the anti sluggard. <laughs> so yeah, basically what he's saying here is that there are small things like little things, but they demonstrate large truths that we can learn from. So the first one are ants. He says the ants are not are people not strong yet they prepare their food in the summer. So in other words, he's recognizing the fact that since the ants are not very powerful and they could easily just be stepped on, right? They're, they're really small. He says that they, in, in spite of being really poor, they're not just like, oh, we're so small. What can we do in this world? There's nothing we can do. He says they prepare for adversity. So there are some people who just want to be victims their entire life, and they're just like, oh, I'm small, I'm insignificant, and they never do anything. What he's saying is if you're small and insignificant, all the more reason to work harder and to provide sustenance for yourself in the future. Think far ahead, right? Don't say, I'm a victim, I can't do anything. Say, I am a small person, therefore I need to do more of this than the average person in order to protect myself from adversity and opponents. Uh, The next uh, this is a similar lesson. The rock badgers are feeble folk, yet they make their homes in the crags. So he's saying that there's some weak animals. So what do they do? They seek out strong dwelling places in order to protect themselves from other predators. So once again, what's the message here? Again, if you're a weak person, if you're someone who... Uh, First level consumer. <laughs> yeah, you need to find things that can protect you. You need to find things that can protect you from the elements. That's why it's uh, very smart to not build your house out of like styrofoam or something like that. You need to have a strong home to protect you from the elements. You need to have a strong community to protect you from outside forces that might try to kill you, things like that. That's why things like military and police forces are good. We are feeble folk. We need, we need some things to protect us. Uh, the next one are locusts have no kings, yet they advance in ranks. And we could be saying here is that the locusts don't have any centralized governance, but they recognize that they have strength in numbers. So when he says they advance in ranks, he means that they, uh, they don't need anyone to coordinate them, but they still recognize a necessity of moving forward. They all move with, with their... a common purpose without being given orders. You can exactly. say, well, don't they have those like serotonin spikes and stuff? Well, yeah, but even... It's not a king. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as, as human beings, we don't need to have someone at the top. We don't need to look at our politicians as saviors to tell us what to do. We need to just know that it's important for us to be together and, like Sean said, have common purposes for the benefit of all. Uh, the spider skillfully grasps with its hands, and it is in king's palaces. What he's pointing out is the fact that even though spiders, again, are very small and unwanted, he says that they have this skillful way of being able to manipulate themselves into places of power. So, so in other words, he's saying, again, if you're small, you're weak. It's important for you to utilize your intelligence to be able to put yourself in the palaces, in the positions of power in whatever way you can, not so that you're like some social climber, but so that you can be in a position where you can better yourself and your family through proximity towards these powerful places. And all four points have one thing in common. Again, they're all small, but they work smart and they work hard. Right. So, absolutely. Hard work. Yeah. Um, here's a question from Isaiah. Uh, we didn't get the chance to get to this one yesterday. Uh, he wants to know what's the best age to witness to a child, to speak, uh, you know, spiritual truths to them and so forth. Uh, obviously, in your own family, you have opportunities to seek those out, but Peter is the parent between us. You know that there are ages where that's not going to matter or make any difference. And you also know you can also be overbearing and address these things a little 
too either too high or too insistently. Obviously, there's the passage taken out of context, train up a child on the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's interpreted to mean, oh, every child that hears the gospel gets saved. No. But if, on the other hand, we'd say, okay, how do I be a witness to anybody, let alone a child? Because, obviously, the world's going after people younger and younger. We need to be ready to respond in kind. I think the best way is when it's appropriate. And that is on a moment-by-moment basis, not on a number-by-number. When we do outreaches and kids want artwork, I try to be the nice person. If they ask questions, I answer them. If they want a tract, I give it to them. But if, on the other hand, I'm not their parent or their parent isn't comfortable with them being around us, I respect that boundary and still try to ultimately leave it up to the Spirit of God. If you're given the opportunity to be a part of that process, just be available, be faithful, be teachable, be given the opportunity, learn to recognize those opportunities, and to not take full advantage of them, but use even the small things and entrust the rest to God. Anything more you'd add to that? Yeah, from a position as a parent, you're always training up your child. Uh, there's there's levels of maturity that they can access at particular ages, but you just tailor whatever you're trying to train into them to the age that they are. Uh, but there's never a time where I'm not already, you know, we're, we're my daughter can't really talk very well and things like that. But if we're not teaching her good manners, good ethics to be around people, which all speak of God, by the way, uh, we're trying to prevent her from watching things that are going to like be obviously I'm not going to sit down and watch a rated R bloody movie with her, you know, but you know, when we're watching movies, we're trying to find things that, that speak of the ethics and the morality that we believe in and that we agree with. So yeah, you know, we are watching Disney movies and things like that, but she enjoys it. She likes it, you know, well, and, and admit it. You do too. And I do too. <laughs> that, 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 that's very true. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to read her books that again, help her in that endeavor as she gets older and can articulate things a little bit better we'll just be more clear and more direct but yeah it's always happening just at different levels all right and then to finish up the broadcast nina wants to know how to avoid worrying about the future i'll default to jesus on this one in matthew chapter six he said don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow worry about its own things let each day worry about itself or to each day is its own trouble when we're talking about that passage it's easy just to say stop it but understand that was the end of a very long conversation we don't have the time to go into it but i encourage you read it on your own time in summation it's what seek first just go one verse past seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness all these things what things the things we worry about the past the present and the future they'll be taken care of they're in the hands of a good and a loving a powerful and a trustworthy god god bless you we'll see you all again tomorrow been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com and be sure to join us next time on a reason for hope a reason for hope is an outreach ministry of calvary christian fellowship in tucson arizona